And we're in a series, we're working through Nehemiah. We've been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. Those books are back-to-back together in the Old Testament. They really form one unit, one story. So this morning we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow along in the bulletin. Let me ask you this to begin. Um, You know, the, the night that, right before Jesus was arrested and then crucified the next day, He's praying, and this is called the high priestly prayer. You can find it in John chapter 17. But one of the things that Jesus says in the high priestly prayer, he says this to God his Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's, really, it's, it's a remarkable definition uh, from Jesus of what is, what is the real essence of eternal life. And it's not, you know, my pleasure or my, or my happiness or my comfort, although God is going to provide all those for his people in eternity. But the real essence of it is to know God and know Christ. So let me ask you this. When you think of somebody that knows God, what do you think of? I mean, do you think somebody that just can run circles around you in biblical knowledge or theological knowledge? Uh, or do you think of somebody who's just super humble and just the way they carry themselves is so humble and they're such servants? When you think of somebody that really knows God, or maybe how they pray, just, you just hear this incredible fullness come out of their hearts when they pray. I, I want you to hear an, an incident where God confronts someone. And when he confronts that person, he refers to that person's dad and he says, Now he knew me. And I want you to hear how God describes it. And uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, you don't have to turn there. But this is in Jeremiah 22. And God, through Jeremiah, is, uh, he's confronting a bad king. This bad king had a dad named Josiah. And Josiah was, comparatively, a good king. And I want you to hear what God says to this son of Josiah. He says, do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? In other words, you think you're a king because you've got the biggest cedar house in town? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Now get this part. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well Is not this what it means to know me, declares the Lord? That when God confronts a bad king who's not doing what the Bible calls doing justice, doing righteousness, as manifested by caring for the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed, God says, you know what? I wish that instead of all the cedar in the nice house, I wish you were like your dad. Your dad did justice. Your dad cared for the widow and the orphan. And then God says, isn't that what it means to know me? And I want to I put that before you before I read this passage because, you know, we're in Nehemiah and it's been all about the wall, right? The wall, the wall, the wall. Nehemiah has been sent back to Jerusalem to help them rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and the gates. And this passage says nothing about the wall. 
it, it really is a passage about societal reform. And, and I'm mildly nervous that as soon as I say something like societal, societal reform, you know, or helping the oppressed or doing justice, that, that to, to many ears in the room, that sounds like a political stance or a questionable policy or that I'm pushing progressivism or liberalism or some other ism. And really, what, what I'm wanting you to see is that there is this robust biblical theme that when people in general who are hurting cry out to God, but especially when His people cry out when they're being oppressed and they can't make ends meet, when they cry out to Him, part of who God is is He hears it. And it concerns him. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Your word is true food. We don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of you, the Lord. So help us to hear you now. Uh, Lord, we 
believe that you love us. So in your, lo- in your love, let us hear you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A friend of mine shared with me about an interesting, well, just an interesting lesson he learned through a second job that he took. Uh, when, uh, when, when, he, when, when his children were very young, and he had a good many children in a, in a short amount of time, he and his wife, uh, he decided to supplement his income by picking up a paper route. So he had his normal day job, that, that was kind of his main income, but he did a paper route early in the morning to supplement his income. And he has told me, Brian, I, I mean, I, it was tired like I have never been tired. I think he said he got up at 350 so he could be at the place to pick up the papers at 4 and get ready to, um, to do the route. So truly early in the morning. And he said, among other things that he noticed is um, some assumptions he had on his insides really got pushed on. And he gave one example. You know like when you're uh, driving and, and maybe a car pulls up next to you or you see a car like this in the parking lot where there's, there's a window that somehow was busted out. And the window has been cellophane, you know, and duct taped to, to cover the window, but the window hasn't been replaced. Have you, you seen what I'm talking about? This may be your car. I don't know. But, but if you, have you seen what I'm talking about? I haven't seen much of that in the parking lot. And, uh, and he said that when, when he would see something like that, that what would go through his mind is, oh, my goodness, you know what happened? Like this person had insurance, and they were in some kind of fender bender. Somebody vandalized their car, and then they filed an insurance claim and they got the money, and instead of using it on the window, they, like, did something else with it. They used it, you know, for fun or drink or drugs or whatever. Uh, but he just said that's just kind of the way his mind worked. And my mind has worked that way. When I've seen busted out windows like that, I've thought that before. So he said it was very humbling to get to a place at 4 o'clock in the morning and morning after morning after morning after morning, you'd see people there ready to work, and some of them had busted out windows with cellophane duct tape. Now, we can't know everything about that person's life, but I'd say if you can show up at 4 a.m. to a workplace regularly, work ethic may not be the issue. And he said it really pushed on him that, you know what, are there cases where somebody takes insurance money and just, just has fun with it and doesn't use it for what it's intended? Yes. Can it be the case that somebody doesn't replace their window because they're lazy and they just don't tend to things? Yes. Is there such a thing as insurance fraud? Yes. False claims? Yes. Is it the case that sometimes somebody has a real financial kind of perfect storm and they're doing the best they can? Yes. Like, is it sometimes the case that you've got a single parent and they've got a kid with asthma and they, they never, they live paycheck to paycheck, they never just have like a little windfall and that if this window got busted out and they filed a claim and they got some insurance money and they kind of have a little bitty windfall in their lives and their kid needs an inhaler, is it ever the case that rather than replace the window, they get the inhaler because they're trying to be a good mom or dad? Is that ever the case? Yes. But if you haven't been around the have-nots, it's hard to appreciate that. And many of us are rarely around the have-nots because most of us are the haves. 
And something else that he pointed out about you know, doing this paper route is that he, he really had not been on the side of the have-nots, you might say. And as a paper boy at that point, he's a husband and dad, but he's a paper boy, he was kind of wearing the shoes of a have-not. And he found out that if he threw a paper in a driveway, like let's say a dog grabbed it and took it off, he was charged for it. The paper wasn't charged for it. He was charged for it. And he said it was clear to him that that policy was not written by somebody that was a paper boy. That was written by the owners. That was written by the halves. Now, again, I know all the, but what about, you know, if you don't have a policy like that? Nah. I understand. I understand the, the but whatabouts. But for him, it was a window into there are, pe- there are neighbors all around me that are have-nots, and some of them experience what we might say is financially a perfect storm, and they just have to do something. You know, like, you've heard about predatory lenders, and they're predatory lenders in our city. And, and so if you've ever heard about the, these just crazy interest rates that can be charged in these institutions legally... And you've thought, well, who in the world would go to that? Why don't they just go through a normal financial institution? Well, you're saying that probably as somebody with good credit or okay credit. But what if your background does not lend itself to having good credit and your child has a need or your home has a need and you've got to do something? If you experience sort of a financial storm, you'll do things you wouldn't normally do because you're in a storm. This passage is about Jews who've come to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and they're experiencing a perfect storm. And here's the perfect storm. And and really, this is represented, let's say, in verses 2 through 5. And here's the storm. You've got some people who just, they just don't have means. These are the people in verse 2 that say, we have lots of children and we don't have enough food. And by the way, keep in mind that that's not necessarily because they're lazy. They have left properties and fields and farms to come work on the wall. So guess what's not happening? Food production, revenue production. And they're looking up, trying to help rebuild the wall, but they're saying, we've got family that we can't feed. So that's one group. Then in verse, I think, 3, you've got reference to a famine that people have had to uh, mortgage their property because a famine in the area has made such demands of them that they just kind of had to do what they could. Like, well, this guy over here has revenue. This guy over here has extra grain and, and wine and oil. He says that he can give it to us if we, like, mortgage our property to him. So to feed their family, they do. Then in verses 4 and 5, this is really interesting you've got people dealing with the fact that this is now Persian-controlled territory. And if you were in Persian-controlled territory, you had to pay tribute to the Persian ruler, Artaxerxes, at this point. And Persians were not afraid to charge high tribute. And lots of people couldn't afford it, so they had to borrow money to pay it. If you're a have-not, from whom do you borrow? The haves. Where do they show up in the passage? Verse 7, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So Jews without means who can't pay the Persian tribute go to Jews with means, the nobles and the officials, and they borrow money and they're charged a high rate of interest and now they're in trouble. 
That's the perfect storm. Um, what I'm wanting you to see is that Nehemiah is not only a leader in regard to infrastructure, which is daunting. The fact that they rebuilt that wall and cleared that rubble and pulled this off is remarkable. And he's the front man. But that's not all he did. One of the ways that God used Nehemiah in Jerusalem with his people was for societal reform behind that wall, inside that wall. In other words, if I was going to give this sermon another name, it might be, what kind of Jerusalem will we be? Yeah, we're going to have this wall, new gates, get things ship-shaped. What kind of Jerusalem are we going to be? So let's look at this. Let's look at this reform that God uses Nehemiah to bring about. Where does it come from? Where does this societal reform come from? And where I want to start is where it doesn't come from. It doesn't just come from Nehemiah the man. That Nehemiah has these great instincts. Nor does it come from just some kind of lofty, higher ideal called, let's say, human rights. That there's this bigger ideal that he's appealing to called human rights or love for one another. What? Where does the reform come from? And I want you to look where this comes out. This is when Nehemiah, he gathers the nobles and the officials and he confronts them. And look at what he says in verse 9. I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Now get this part. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Now, this is not the first time in here that we've talked about the fear of God, but, but it's just one of those terms that I feel like I have to clarify or because these words can mean different things to different people. It doesn't mean slavish fear. It doesn't mean living in fear of God the bully who's going to drop the hammer on people who make mistakes. That's not the biblical fear of God. What is the fear of God biblically? It's when you really know Him and you're in awe of Him because He's so much more powerful than any of us could imagine. Even His wrath, His anger, His holiness, His justice, His law-giving, His infinity, this great God. And yet, this same God is not either or. He's both and. You know I love both and. That this God is the God of love. That He even loves sinners. That He pursues them. That He moves toward them. The fear of God is that all that in your insides makes you in awe of Him. But it's an awe that trends toward love. Not toward hiding or avoidance. And, and here's what Nehemiah is saying. It's almost like, I, I'll just say this, if I can be autobiographical. I've been a Christian now for, I'd say, a little over 35 years. And, I mean, I'm a pastor. Christianity is part of my vocation. It's part of my, like, weekday work. But sometimes God will put somebody in my life, and they'll just kind of say, I'm not thinking of any one particular, but they'll just say something like, Hey, Brian, look, here's what you've got to remember. You've got to love God. And know Him. 
and be close to him. And I'm just kind of doing all this pastoral stuff and Christian stuff and trying to be a good parent. And somebody just says, look, you, you've got to know God and be close to him. And then, you know, the camera goes to Brian going, I know, that's the main thing. I know, that's what I want. That's the main thing. Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God. Really, rather than Nehemiah just lead with scolding, he, said, he does say, what you're doing is not good. But then he says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God and know him. For instance, look down below the passage. This is a quote from the biblical law, from Deuteronomy 23. It says, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brothers, the brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that's lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now, let me ask the same question. Where does that law come from? Does it come from a higher authority than God? Or a greater obligation than God? There is no higher authority than God. There is no higher obligation than God. God's law reflects what God is like. So when you look in the law of God and you see repeated, and I mean repeated provision and protection for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the alien in your midst, when you see that over and over, and not just in the law, but in the prophets and in the apostles, what is that telling us? That you're seeing the heart of God. Our God cares deeply. We know it not just from his actions, but him saying it explicitly. He cares deeply for the oppressed. He cares deeply for those who receive injustice. He cares deeply for the poor who are in a bind. And as they say, we have no power. And because they can't get justice on the earth, they cry out, he hears it. And in, in that same way that we can be having a downtown prayers women's Bible study, and there can be 20 women in a small group having a discussion, and there's, on the other side of a wall, children crying. And to, to men, it's just an indiscriminate blob of crying. But in this group of 20 mothers, one can be mid-sentence and go, wait, that's mine. They know the voice of their child, the cry of their child. When God's children cry out and say, Lord, I want to work. I want to provide. But I can't make ends meet and I don't know what to do. I cannot make ends meet. He hears their cry. That's part of who God is. The reform begins with God. And also notice this, this word that keeps coming up in Nehemiah's account. Look, go back to verse 1. There arose a great outcry of the people. By the way, that term in Hebrew is, is a, almost a technical term for this thing that comes up from the people of God when they're being crushed. And he hears them like that parent. A great outcry of the people and of their wives against whom? Their Jewish brothers. 
Look in verse 7. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. What are the two greatest commandments according to Jesus? Love God. Love your neighbor. Love God, love people. When we are in the position of being a blessing to someone whom we pay or should pay or provide for, and that person is left so in a bind that they're crying out to God, guess what great commandments we have violated? We have not shown that person what God is like, so we have not loved God. And we sure haven't loved that person. When we oppress, we violate. When anyone oppresses, we violate the two greatest commandments. Uh, I was was reminded of a book that I've, I've read it a few times. It's called Preachers with Power. It's about Southern Presbyterian preachers in the, 19, uh, in the 1800s. And uh, it, it features four S- Southern Presbyterian preachers. Three of the four were either born in or worked in South Carolina. And uh, this is a book by Douglas Kelly. He's a theologian. It's called Preachers with Power. And when, when I tell you that Douglas Kelly is a Southerner, believe me, Douglas Kelly is a Southerner. And if you heard him speak from this lectern, you would know he is a Southerner. But in the introduction to this book about Southern Presbyterian preachers, he he writes an essay about the Old South. It's just called The Old South, An Introduction. And he talks about the fact that when, in the mid-19th century, when state leaders and some national leaders, when they were looking for a, a defense of slavery, an intellectual defense of the institution of slavery, some of the main people that they looked to were Presbyterian theologians. Southern Presbyterian theologians. Uh, Dr. Kelly writes that uh, those kind of defenses were written. They're written by very brilliant men. Uh, They did use scriptures in their arguments because slavery is in both the Old and the New Testament. He says, uh, unfortunately, they did not take into serious consideration the fact that the blacks had been stolen from their homeland and that for Christians to buy stolen property is wrong. He starts there. And then he says this, that that when you read these defenses, particularly one by a Presbyterian named Robert Louis Dabney, you find him reaching back into Old Testament law and applying Old Testament law that pertains to masters and slaves, but what he did not apply and what his contemporaries did not apply was the law of the Jubilee. And you know what the law of the Jubilee said? If you have a brother, like a fellow Israelite, who has enslaved himself to you. Now, that would not so much be chattel slavery as what we'd call indentured servitude, but it's slavery. If he or she has become your slave every 50 years, after seven sevens on the year of Jubilee, all slaves are released. All slaves are free. And oddly enough, the Jubilee doesn't show up in the defenses of slavery. And here's what Dr. Kelly goes on to write. Classical Protestantism of the 19th century had not even thought of, much less systematically developed, such a concept. 
More to the point, in terms of their own age, they were able somehow to overlook the obvious implications of the freedom and equality that we have in Jesus Christ. In a word, their reading of Scripture was hampered and twisted by the degree of fallenness which remained in their culture as in every other culture. The United States of America and the still largely segregated churches of the, of the land have not yet ceased to pay a price for this woeful failure. Now again, he writes that very much as a southerner, but does that ring true? Um, do, you, do you feel something of the burden that, hey, if we rebuild this wall and we make it an even more beautiful wall and we don't fear God and walk in love toward one another, even at the level of things like money and income and provision and grain and oil, if we don't do that, what good is the wall? That's not an ism. That's being the people of God. Uh, so, so then, how does Nehemiah go about addressing this? I mean, first off, he, it, this is really amazing. He says in verse, um, in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. And I didn't read one commentator that really gave a great explanation of what that means. It just, Nehemiah just apparently says, I had to sit down and think about that. I was so upset, I had to think. So I thought, sure he thought about God's word, thought about God's law, thought about what God had called him to. <clears throat> and he says, first off, that there's going to be a great assembly. This is really interesting, that the first thing he did was, rather than confront an individual, he confronted the entire system. Uh, not many individuals get to do that. That's not many individuals' calling, but his calling was to confront the whole system. He gives them a very specific call to action. Look in verse 11. You don't have to wonder what he wants them to do. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Okay, I think we know what we're supposed to do. Very specific actions. If, if you exacted interest on a fellow Israelite who's in a hard place, your brother or sister, and you're kind of squeezing them when they're in a financial perfect storm, and that what's being wrung out when you squeeze them is money for you, grain for you, oil and wine for you. Give it back. Now, and then the last thing he does, th this is where Nehemiah doesn't so much look like a constructor as a prophet. Verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, and picture this, so he's, he's taking his tunic and shaking it. He says, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. That sounds like the prophets. And listen to how this passage ends. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Like, when you think about social changes that we need, the fact that this one ends with people worshipped God and they did the thing they were supposed to do, it kind of leaves me going, I'm not even used to that. I'm not used to happy endings like that. I'm used to, this is going to take three generations to fix this and just, just buckle in and do the best you can. Nope. Changed, repented, and worshipped God. Happy ending. 
it'd be fun to say, let's close in prayer. Um, you know, I just looked at this passage, and I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I looked at it. And finally, the question that bubbled up is the question that if I was a have-not, it would have bubbled up the first time I read it. But I'm a have, so it took me days and days and days, and it took the work of the Holy Spirit. You know what the question is? A great outcry rose up from Jerusalem, and God raised up a Nehemiah. What about all the outcries all over our world, and there's no Nehemiah? What do we do with that? And did you know that the scriptures address that? Um, quite a bit. If you grew up singing the Psalms, if that was your hymn book, you would have grown up singing things like this. I'm not going to tell you where it's from. I don't want you to look it up. I just want you to hear it as the lyric of the song. They praised God and said, He delivers the needy when He calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life. These were the lyrics that God's people sang. But there is oppression. And there is violence. And there is injustice. So is the song fake? Are the songs fake? I mean, Nehemiah had a good run there, but are the songs fake globally? Let me point you to another prophecy. This is a prophecy from Isaiah about this man who's going to come along who's the servant of God. And even the rabbis understood that this has to be Messiah because no other person could pull this off. And it's God speaking to and about the servant. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures, did he? Did he fix oppression and injustice when he came? Uh, judging from the first arrival, no. And you know what? That was so frustrating to people like John the Baptist that when John the Baptist was in prison and he was getting, trying to get everybody ready for the Messiah and then he gets thrown in prison, Jesus forgive my tortured grammar, so didn't act the way he thought he would that he sent a message from prison to say, are you the one we're waiting for or is it somebody else? That's John the Baptist. Because I, I told everybody that you were coming with your winnowing fork in your hand and there was going to be a great shakedown of this world and those who do injustice and oppress would be thrown into the fire like chaff and you're like healing people and teaching are we waiting for somebody else? I want you to get this point and then I'm done. Theologians talk about the two advents of Jesus in terms of the state of his humiliation and the state of his exaltation. When Jesus came the first time, he came in a state of humiliation. You know what that means? That our God became man and wrote himself into the story of injustice and oppression to receive it. One of the prophecies about him, by oppression and judgment, 
he was taken away, Isaiah 53. But in doing that, in coming under oppression and violence and unfairness, experiencing poverty and being with the poor and then dying and then rising, he overcame this world. He not only paid for the sins of his people, but he overcame this world. And, and here's the thing I want you to hear. Part of the gospel that we tend to underutilize is not just what he did in his first advent, but what he will do in his second advent. When he comes again, he does not come in his humiliation. He comes in his exaltation. When he comes, he will rid injustice and oppression, poverty, violence from the new earth. And here's the thing. It's cool to hear that and say, awesome. I like that. I want that to happen. And I can't wait for lunch. It's another thing to say, if I'm going to sit here and pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that means upon us is not just the burden, but the privilege that however God enables us, that we are to labor for those who are crying out especially our brothers and sisters. Can I be like extremely candid and direct? Quit pretending like you don't have influence. Quit pretending like you and I don't have levers that we can pull to help those who are crying out. God has to show you which lever to pull for which person. But let's quit pretending that we can't do anything for Greenville and for our world. Um, I'll end with this. A friend of mine, he's a pastor. He was talking to a guy after church. And uh, this, uh, this guy he was talking to is a dad, an adult daughter. His uh, daughter was, was just kind of going through boyfriends, going through boyfriends, and uh, just trying to find Mr. Wright. And she says, or, the dad says to my pastor friend, he says, I'm just concerned that she's just waiting on some prince to ride in on a white horse and just kind of fix everything. Now, if I, if I had been the guy talking to the dad, I would have said, I know, I know, kids. We've got to raise realistic kids. And what my friend had the presence of mind to say is, i got to be honest with you. I'm banking my whole eternity on that happening. Have you read Revelation that I'm banking my whole eternity on the prince with a capital P riding in on a white horse and fixing everything. That is what happens at the end. And a way that we show that we believe that is we love what he loves and we hate what he hates and we act accordingly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, we may be left sitting here thinking, I'm more confused than when that started. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to aim this. I'm overwhelmed by what needs change in Greenville and in our world, and I don't know where to start. Lord, where there's confusion, would you grant us clarity? Where we already feel defeated, would you give us zeal for you? Would you create in us a love for what you love and a hate for what you hate? We pray that... 
if we are those who have never cried out like this and we're not used to hearing it, would you give us ears to hear the outcry even in Greenville? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.